Praise the Lord. I really enjoyed the announcements today. Thank you, Brother Carl. I really did. I just, I don't know why I enjoy those little hiccups, but I do. You know, church, the craziest things happen at church. Have you ever noticed that? Years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he was pastoring out in Oklahoma. He was telling me about uh, an old preacher that he knew out there. His wife had told him this story about how that her husband got up, and he preached one night, and his zipper was down. And she was sitting on the back row, and she did everything she could to get his attention. I mean, she was just giving him signals, but he was on fire that night. He just kept on preaching. And so finally, she grabbed a piece of paper, and she wrote, Zip it. And she held it up in the back of the church. And he saw that sign, and he said, Woman, I'll quit preaching when the Holy Ghost tells me to stop. <laughs> Sometimes the funniest things happen in church. And, you know, I was looking. I was looking for a little Mother's Day Day humor today, and I found this. It was pretty interesting. It's a mother's dictionary of meanings. So just kind of bear with me on this one. A mother's dictionary of meanings. Dumb waiter. That is one who asks if the kids would care to have dessert. (laughs) Feedback. The inevitable result when the baby doesn't appreciate the strained carrots. Full name. That's what you call your child when you're really mad at them. Grandparents. The people who think your children are wonderful even though they're sure that you're not raising them right. (laughs) Hearsay. That's what toddlers do when anyone mutters a dirty word. (laughs) Independent. That's how we want our children to be for as long as they do everything that we say. (laughs) Puddle is a small body of water that draws other small bodies wearing dry shoes into it. (laughs) A show-off. That's any child who is more talented than my child. (laughs) Sterilize. This is what you do to your first baby's pacifier by boiling it and to your last baby's pacifier by blowing it off. (laughs) That's a good one. Top bunk. That's where you should never put a child. (laughs) Okay, this one gave me a flashback. I didn't read all of these before I got to you, so... This one gave me a bit of a flashback. Top bunk, that's where you should never put a child wearing his Superman pajamas. <laughs> oh, help me, Jesus. That, that one's there. <laughs> Two-minute warning. When the baby's face turns red and she begins to make those familiar grunting noises. <laughs> And of course, who done it? None of the kids that live in your house. <laughs> and so that's kind of a Mother's Day dictionary for some of you. Um, I want to talk to you today about one of the most infamous mothers in history. 
And I believe with all of my heart that God can speak to us through the example of this incredible character of Scripture. And I want to talk to you about the mother of our Savior, Mary. You know, the Bible describes her as a very virtuous young woman and someone who was extremely devout to the Lord. And she really had a heart after God. And um, there was incredible grace that was bestowed upon Mary. And uh, I do realize that in some sects and religions that Mary has virtually been deified and sometimes prayers are offered to her. And it's not my attempt today to deify Mary. It's only to look at who she really was and what the Bible tells us about her and learn a little bit about this woman who was selected to be the mother of the Savior of the world. The Bible says, When Mary returned to Nazareth after visiting Elizabeth, Joseph, finding her with child, was minded to put her away privately. Although Joseph was only espoused to Mary, uh, this was entirely in order. For from the moment of her betrothal, a woman was treated as if she were actually married. The union could not be dissolved except by regular divorce or breach of faithfulness was regarded as adultery. Making a public example of her alludes to the law of the woman suspected of adultery set forth in the book of Numbers. But of course, the appearance of the angel to Joseph solved this dilemma. I would just like to say that when the angels of the Lord are assigned to protect your reputation, that's a righteous individual. A matter of fact, there are those who are of a mindset, and I tell young people coming into the ministry this, that we are not at the mercy of those who accuse us. Some people have said, boy, you know, all it takes is one woman to, to say something about a preacher and his reputation is destroyed. And that's just simply not true. There's not that much power in a lie. And God will defend your reputation if you're right. <laughs> Amen. Have you know, you know, if, if we're wrong, the Bible says, let the judgment that we, belongs to us come to us. For if we do wrong, the Bible says, and we are judged for it, then what, what complaint have we? But when we do right and we are misjudged, God has a way of defending us. And look at the circumstances of Mary and how terrible that this looked. And yet the angel of the Lord came to Joseph and said, Do not put this woman away. This is an anointed child. And you are going to name this child Emmanuel, God with us. And all of these various instances demonstrate two things in respect to Mary. Number one, Mary is not an exceptional case, living as she did under Jewish customs regarding women in her day, except in virtue and in relationship to God. In other words, she was... Not given special treatment, serious consideration was given to putting her away. But at the same time, 
It was because of the virtue and her relationship with God, amen, that the angel came and defended her reputation. And I want you to think about this today when we think about the mother of Jesus, that we only have four encounters in Scripture between Jesus and Mary. Now, I think one of the reasons that we um, have so few references in regards to this, amen, is because I, I, I really believe that God in his wisdom did not want Mary to be deified. And what's interesting is, is that there's an entire history that is denied to the Western church because of the second century and third century controversy that arose between the Western church and the Eastern church. Some of you are not even sure what I'm talking about. You say, what are you talking about? Well, have you know history's written by the winners? Oh, it's kind of quiet. History is written by the winners. And if you don't like what the losers said about it, you just burn all their books. You know, they didn't have the internet back in that day. You just leak it out and everybody knows. You know, there was, they could control the flow of information. And what happened beginning in the beginning in the latter part of the second century and into the third century as Christianity was legalized uh, under Constantine, amen, it began to uh, organize itself through bishops and archbishops. And we see really the birth of the, the worldwide church, the Catholic church. And at that time, though, the Catholic church was speaking for all of Christendom. And so... You know, there was really no break from the Catholic Church at that time. There was just, you know, you was, you, you was Christian, you were Catholic. And there was very little in the way of sects that believed differently or separately from that. Um, and uh, there was a control of who knew and understood the Word of God. The Word of God was not available in the common language of the people. The printing press had not yet been invented, and so the only copies that were available were handwritten copies. And they were at the disposal of priests. And so priests could explain what the Bible said. But yet, oftentimes, if they got it wrong, everybody got it wrong. And if they needed to raise money, just like today, you know, if uh, I remember one television preacher was trying to build an amusement park. And so he started talking about the train of the Lord. And we're going to have a train in this, in this, uh, <laughs> we're going to have a train in this amusement park. And. And this is going to be God's train, just like in Isaiah. And, of course, we all know that the train of the Lord was his garment that followed him. And it was the, it was the symbolic of the fact that the presence of God had come. Because, have you know, you can't, you, can't, uh, you can't have the train go by if the person didn't go by. When someone's in a wedding gown and the train follows behind them, have you know, they have to come by before the train comes by. Well, they couldn't see God, but they saw the train. It's, a, it's amazing to me that we can turn that into a choo-choo train that little kids are going to ride around. Well, the Catholic Church started doing the same thing. They needed to raise money, so they came up with things like purgatory, which is the, probably the oldest and longest-lasting blackmail, spiritual blackmail scheme that's ever been invented. Your loved ones go to purgatory, and you can, pray, you can pay a priest to pray them out. And of course, knowing how rotten most of our relatives were, have you know, we're going to have to come cough up some money. <laughs> because, you know, they weren't really taught to live holy. 
They were given indulgences. Indulgences was another thing that was invented to raise money. If you did certain sins, you could buy an indulgence. In other words, you could pay the church and the church would forgive you that sin. So you could divorce your wife, marry your girlfriend, and as long as you had enough money to pay the church, the church would forgive that. That's called an indulgence. So they had some real fundraising going on in the church. You know, uh, um, and, and I, I'll be honest with you, I can, get, I can get emotional talking about this because I'll never forget Brenda's grandmother telling us the story of a young girl. She was 17 years old when she married a young man who went off to Vietnam and died in the first few months that he was there. She was not even 18 yet and a widow. And the priest came to her, and this young man that she married, you know, was, uh, had agreed to become Catholic along with her. She was from a very strong and devout Catholic family. The priest came to her and said, unless you pay me $200 a month, his soul's going to remain in purgatory forever. Within a few months, she was so depressed and so overwhelmed by this that she went into a mental hospital. We sat right there in that apartment listening to her friend tell us this story firsthand. And she said a bap- one day a Baptist minister came in to visit somebody that was in the room next to her. And while he was there, he began to talk to her and he shared with her for the first time in her life the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she accepted Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. And God delivered her from that oppression. Amen. And she was taught the truth. How do you know? When somebody passes away, they're in the hands of a just God. And there ain't anything we can do to change their destiny once they're gone. If you're going to pray, you need to pray now. If you're going to do something, do it now. Now, I'm only sharing this because it's, it's relevant to Mary. Mary... Because of that, the church is missing the good truth that's in Mary because now we've said, okay, what happened? Well, it literally divided the church. The archbishop of the Eastern Church, so we're talking about the missionaries that were going out into the Eastern part of the world, the Asian part of the world. We're talking about missionaries that eventually made it to Japan, and Japan received a Christian message. At one time, there was a great revival in Japan up until around the early 1800s when an evil king came into power and killed every Christian in Japan. Literally, they went door to door, drugged them out, and murdered them. And Christianity was erased from Japanese history, and we don't hear anything else about it until more recently when missionaries have went there. But all these areas of the world, the seven churches of Asia that are now in the seven churches of Asia... There is less than 1% of the population in those areas that are Christian today. And yet they were thriving churches when John the Revelator wrote to them. They were powerful churches. Have you remember the seven churches of Asia? Amen, that the Bible talks about that are not just symbolic. They were literal churches. But if we go to those same nations today, every single one of those churches exists in a Muslim nation where there is a less than 1% Christian population. What happened? I'm about to tell you what happened. The bishop of the Eastern Church became concerned with the language of calling Mary the mother of the divine. 
and he wrote a doctrinal paper to the Pope and said, I am concerned that this kind of language could lead to the deification of Mary as a God and that we should avoid this language. And the Pope was so offended because he liked the phrase mother of the divine, which later became the divine mother affecting forever the doctrine of that church making now Mary a deity that many people believe replaces the pagan goddess mother earth that was worshipped for centuries by pagans and so it was a compromise made by the Pope in order to include these pagans into Christianity and keep from offending them because their deity was a woman. So they begin to deify Mary. It's not till the third century you begin to see the same halo that was around Jesus around the head of Mary in artifacts and in pictures. How many of you are following me? I'm giving a little bit of a history lesson, but how many of you understand there's truth in this? So what happened was they rejected the entire Eastern church. They put him out as a heretic. Well, of course, the Eastern Church didn't know the Pope, but they knew the bishop, and they believed he was a righteous man. They also believed that he was right about the fact that we should be careful of such language, mother of the divine, because it could lead us down a wrong path. And so because of that, the entire history of the Eastern Church, they're considered to be heretics, and we have, we have no history. So here are these great missionaries that went into nations of China. I'm talking about in the 5th, 6th century, 15th, 16th century. We have no record of what they did. We don't know the exploits of what they did. We're just now, as some of these nations are opening up to us, and we are seeing all of these Baltic states that are becoming more open, and we're getting into nations... Uh, we're getting into the area of Constantinople and Asia Minor as never before. We're getting back into Vietnam. We're getting back into uh, Japan. We're getting back into China uh, for the first time in centuries and centuries. And we are just now hearing new stories that are old to them, century-old testimonies of missionaries that came to these nations and gave their life for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's quite interesting to read about. But the division came over Mary. And you know, I think it's because that as Pentecostals and as full gospel believers, we want to disassociate ourselves with, the, with Mary being divine that we don't study her. And we miss what truth there is provided in Scripture. She is given to us as an example in Scripture. And so I just very briefly today, I want to talk to you about the four times that the general silence which surrounds Jesus' relationship with his mother is broken. The first time is when he went to Jerusalem for the Passover at the age of 12. And how do you remember this story? They ended up leaving Jesus behind. He went into the temple and he began to astound the elders with his teaching, even at the age of 12. Let me ask you something. What kind of mother must she have been to the Lord for him to already be teaching the teachers, to already understand the, the, the Word of God better than the teachers. And of course, we know the caravan goes on, and then it returns back, and frantically, here comes this mother. 
she grabs her son. Where have you been? How could you do this to us? Like any mother would respond. And Jesus looks at her and says, Know you not that I must be about my father's business. The second incident, the scene of the wedding in Canaan, illustrated the same principle. Here Mary appears without Joseph. Indeed, this and all the later notices of the Lord's mother confirm the supposition that he, that he most likely died before the ministry of Jesus began. And when the wine was used up, Mary appealed to Jesus for help, and he replied, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now, isn't that interesting, the transformation? At 12 years old, he's over-anxious to begin his ministry. And now that he has come to adulthood, he's reluctant to begin. You know, in some ways, we can see ourselves in Jesus, isn't it? How do you remember when you were 12 and you knew everything? We got some 12-year-olds right now. Ask them. They know everything. But as you begin to grow, you're a little less reluctant to step out and to launch out. And um, I think Jesus is going to be a wonderful message for this generation. And you say, why? Well, because nobody else seems to want to leave home until they're 32. <laughs> and so Jesus is the voice for this generation. <laughs> and when he does, listen to this, when the wine was used up, Mary appealed to Jesus for help. And he replied and he said, woman, what I have to do with me, my hour is not yet come. There is no doubt that woman is an address of respect not like we would necessarily take it today. What have I to do with thee? Wherever used marks some divergence between the thoughts and the ways of the person so brought together. So in this passion, this passage, it serves to show the, the actions of the Son of God. Now what? He has entered on his divine work, are no longer dependent in any way on the suggestion of a woman, even though that woman be his mother. What are you saying? The time of silent discipline and obedience was over. The season of silence. And this is why that so many of the Gnostic Gospels have been rejected. Because it is obvious on this event that this is the birthplace of Christ ministry. There is a reason that the canonized gospels neglect to give us stories of Christ working miracles as a child, some incredible special treatment that was given to him, which fly into the very face of the spirit-filled life concept that Christ didn't do what he did because he was divine. He did what he did because he was a man anointed of the Holy Spirit. So the important message of Christ's birth and his raising is that he worked in obedience. He was obedient to the law. He was obedient to his parents. I, should, I thought I'd get an amen right there. That's why I paused. That's where parents are supposed to say amen. See, because the law commanded them to obey your father and mother that your days may be long upon the earth. My parents made it clear that they wanted us to meet Jesus. That was a priority in their life. 
And oftentimes, when we crossed a certain line, my father offered to let me meet him right away. In a very literal sense. I mean, my dad took that verse to say, your days may be long upon the earth if you honor your father and mother. He thought that was a license to kill for parents. He was like 007 when it came to kids. I was teasing someone the other day. I said, my dad didn't have to raise his voice. There was something about the way he pulled the hammer back on that pistol. You knew he meant business. Of course, my dad never even owned a pistol, but... It illustrated the point. There was a look in his eye that lets you know, hey, you're shortening the days of your life right now. But Jesus was this perfect example. There's nothing that stands out. As a matter of fact, the only time that he got into trouble, it is recorded. And that's when he was teaching. Teaching these people. And there was already an understanding that, yes, he had a purpose, a divine purpose in his life. But what made Jesus special was not his divinity, When he said, these things shall you do in even greater things, it was not because he was born the Son of God, but it was because he was anointed of the Holy Spirit. That's why he was able to say, we can do what he did. Because we have now been born of the Spirit and have the same opportunity to flow in the anointing of the Spirit of God. Have you understand that? That's an important difference. It's a great excuse to look and say, well, he was Jesus and I'm not. Well, you've been born of the Spirit now. He was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Ghost. Well, you've been conceived of the Holy Ghost. Amen. That's why he said, no, you're not that you must be born again. A man's first born of water, but he must be born of the Spirit if he's going to enter the kingdom of God. Have you been born of the Spirit? If you've been born again, then there's nothing stopping you from being like Jesus was. Just be anointed of the Holy Spirit and do those things that the Father tells you to do, both in His Word and by the unction of His Spirit. And so in looking at this story, amen, we see the the woman seemingly uh, beginning to press Him into ministry. Amen. She begins to say, listen, do whatever he tells you to do. Have you remember that being in scripture? Amen. Here's the thing. You're going to do something because now everybody's waiting on you. And I just told them to wait on you. And they're going to do whatever you tell them to do. And of course, he told them to get the pots of water. And then he blessed them. And the water was turned into wine. Now, this next one, though, is of great significance. Amen. Because this next opportunity we have here. Uh, uh, involves a relative renunciation of kinship. Say, what do you mean by that? Well, the Bible tells us that there came a point where they came to Jesus and Mary sought Jesus amidst a crowd of people that he was ministering to. And when told that his mother and brothers were asking for him, Jesus replied by saying, Behold, my mother and my brethren, talking to the crowd. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same as my brother and my sister and my mother. Think about that statement right there. That flies in the face of everything that church is about today. Church is about relationship. And we choose relationship over doctrine. We choose relationship over uh, the pastoring relationship. 
Amen. People say that the reason people join a church is because they meet someone there they think that they could be friends with. That's not how we should choose a church. We should choose a church, amen, based upon what's being preached from the pulpit. Is it the truth that we want to base our eternal lives on? Amen. Is it the whole and the full counsel of God? Amen. Is there integrity in that pulpit? Amen. Is it a word that will stretch me? Don't find a church that makes you comfortable. Find a church that challenges you spiritually. Because no matter where you are, you need to grow. Oh, praise the Lord. No matter where you are, you need to grow. And Jesus, this is very profound. They come to him and they say, listen, your mother and your brothers, they're looking for you. And Jesus said, You're, here's my mother's and my brothers. This is, this, is, this is my family now. Amen. This is the kingdom family. This is a spiritual family. Now, the Bible never tells or advocates rejecting personal relationships. The Bible says if a woman's married and her husband is an unbeliever and she gets saved, continue to live with that man in peace and let the light of God shine upon them. It tells us that a man doesn't provide for his own family, that he's worse than an infidel. The Bible challenges us to maintain our family relationships. When you get saved, you should still respect your parents, even if your parents are heathens. As long as they're not forcing you to do something that's sinful, you should show them honor and you should show them respect. Everyone say amen so I can move on. Okay, so if that being the case, then what is Jesus saying? Jesus saying if there's a priority, priority should be placed on eternal relationships. See, I knew that would be a lead balloon right there because this is the, this is the age right now where family is worshipped. Where children are worshipped. Children have become gods to many parents. I'm not going to get a lot of help here, am I? Coming down. We're doing good today. <laughs> We're going good today. I only get, think about this. I'm on three. I've only got four. You're slowing it down right here. But I can tell you're not receiving this. Oh, but wait a minute. Isn't that the will of God that we put family first? Absolutely not. It's God first. And anybody that tells you anything different is going to damn your soul to hell. Anyone and anything and any relationship can become an idol in your life. And you want to know what's happening in America today? You want to know why divorce is rampant? Here's what's remarkable. The divorce rates are changing. It used to be if you survived seven years, you, you could almost say you're going to make it. Because statistically you were there. But now we have the empty nest syndrome. Where you have two people who have deified their children... Now their children have not only disappointed them because no one could meet the expectations of some parents today. You know, if your kid's not president, if they're not a doctor, if they're not whatever, you can't celebrate, amen, what is unique about them and what they're doing in their life. And that's because what? We've prioritized the world over the kingdom of God. You know, there used to be a season and a time where you could say if you had raised good children who were good Christians and good citizens... Parents could be happy and content with that. But now if they don't have a summer home, are you, are you listening to me? If they don't have a summer home and they've got some kind of issue in their life, you know, there's a, there's a, and so two people can't survive the empty nest syndrome playing the blame game. Say, what are you talking about? Well, it's your fault. <laughs> no, it's your fault. It's your fault. You weren't there for them. No, you smothered them. That was the problem. Well, I had to smother them because you were never there. 
And that, that fight, that get, you know, that gets kind of old. The kids are gone. The house is empty. There's no buffer zone anymore. There's no take it to the bedroom. Now you're free to fight. Fight in the kitchen. Fight in the dining room. Fight in the living room. Now you can go back to throwing things like you used to do when you were young before the kids were watching you. <laughs> Stepping on some toes now. But it's because of an unhealthy relationship already. Say, so what are you talking about? Listen, I love my children and I would give my life for my children. I would give my life for my children. There's no question in my mind that every one of my kids, if they came to me and said they needed something, I'd give it to them. If I could talk the doctors into it, put my heart in them, I'm done. Let them live on. There's no question in my mind that I would do that for my children. And yet my children are not my Jesus. It's quiet in here. My children are not my Jesus. And my wife is not my Jesus. And see, you. let me tell you something. Until it's God first, you're stealing something from them anyway. Because every child has the right to be raised by parents who understand eternal things. And the reason we've got kids that are caught up in this world... Listen to me, they're caught up and they're wrapped up and they're tied up and they're tangled in this world is because parents have not modeled to them God first. And I'll tell you, I preach about it if you want me to. I mean, I'll flat tell it like it is. If you don't, you know, if you don't, if you don't start saying amen like I'm speaking the truth here, I'll, I'll give you enough truth. I mean, I'm not trying to be facetious this morning. I'm just saying I know what it's like trying to be the pastor in this culture. You say, why? Well, because every time you book a revival, I had a board member come to me and tell me, it's the, they, this is what they told me. They said, Pastor, it's just plain stupid to try to do something during March Madness. I mean, that's what a board member told me. I, well, it's just plain stupid. Well, that's because you worship basketball. You know, that's because you haven't figured out how to run a VCR yet. I watch as much or more basketball as anybody here. I just know how to run my DVR. What's the matter with you? I mean, my God, we can watch it anytime we want to now. The problem I have is with the people in church who are watching it on their phones while I'm preaching, and then they come up and tell me the score before I get to go home and watch it and ruin it for me. Shut up! And they're feeling pretty good about themselves because at least they were here. I mean, I'm telling you right now, there's no time for God today. By the time, well, you got to figure in the baseball schedule, the football schedule, the fishing schedule, the hunting schedule. And of course, we got to hunt for deer and we got to hunt for turkey. We got to fish for bass. And then, of course, you know, there's always the walleye fishing season. And, and, and then, uh, uh, ladies, don't act like you don't have a problem because, you know, you know, we got all these soccer moms. Well, my kids are in soccer and my daughter's in softball and I got one playing basketball and I got another one, you know, who's uh, playing cornhole or something and there's no time for revival anymore there's no time you can't schedule a week-long meeting we used to come to church from sunday to sunday two or three times a year and just give that week to god and, and just go to school and go to work but come to church and have revival and get rekindled and refired but there's no time for that anymore because my four-year-old's got a day timer and a full-time secretary Saw a commercial the other day where a dad left his phone with his daughter to help her 
use it as a calculator at a lemonade stand, and when he came back, he needed an appointment. And why is that? Because we have, we, we, we have glorified family and children. It's out of perspective. It's an unhealthy balance. Let me tell you something. You better figure it out. We got moms in this place. You better figure it out. Why? Because one day the kids are going to leave and you got to get along with that man that you've been treating like garbage for 20 years. Go oh, and some of you men, you better wake up and realize the day's going to come when them kids aren't there anymore and she's going to figure out, hey, I can pay my bills. I don't need you. I'm putting up with this. Why? Because it's supposed to be God first, then your spouse, then your children, then your ministry. Don't forget that. We've got, we've got these priorities all messed up. It's God first. And I, I don't apologize. And Jesus was saying at this time, listen, I value eternal relationships over natural relationships. You say, what are you saying? Now, this is old school right here, but I'm going to go ahead and say this. If mama don't go... It won't hinder me. If my daddy don't go, I know it's Mother's Day. I don't care. You done crossed the line now. You had your chance to say amen. I said it on Mother's Day. If mama don't go, won't hinder me. I'm going on with Jesus just the same. I'm going on with Jesus. We've got to begin to value eternal relationships. Hey man, many of us, we're, in, we're, we're caught in the middle today because we're still trying to maintain a relationship with family members that are in the world, that are part of the world, that are, that are hanging around the world. And we, we let them come over the house, let them be a part of our life and our relationship. Listen, we should be a light to them. We should respect them. But listen, we don't have to bring their incest and their homosexuality and their shacked up relationships in as an example before our children. Hey man, when the Bible says, listen, you've got to begin to value your spirit. And value your relationship with God because that's going to matter forever. And I know I've got I've, I've got blood family, and I know that blood is thick. But I I've been born again, and so you're my brother, and you're my sister, and I I stand up for you. I'm part of this clan and this family of God. I won't allow anything or anyone to come against my family. That's what Jesus was saying. This is my family. He respected his mother, but even his mother eventually came into relationship with Jesus on an eternal level. Something even deeper than that. That's what some people don't understand. That's what my father was talking about when he was here, and he said, you know, this is not just my son. This is my, this is my colleague in ministry. This is my friend. So what are you talking about? There's a relationship that transcends the natural. Thank God if you have a good relationship with your father, I'm not suggesting that you break that off. I'm suggesting that we respect those relationships. But when it comes to the house of God and the people of God, we are in an eternal relationship. We're going to heaven together. We better figure out how to get along. We better figure out how to love one another because we're going to be together forever. Come on, touch three people and say forever is a very long time. We got to love one another. That's what the Bible says, especially those of the household of faith. Is that not the word of God? 
That's why I don't care if you family or not. You better not talk about my brothers and my sisters. You better not come in accusing my brothers and my sisters. You better not say anything to disparaging against my brothers and against my sisters because I value those eternal relationships more than even natural relationships. Amen. There's been times where you just had to cut people off because they started stepping in trying to tell you, well, well, you know, you, I ain't going to church there. Well, that's tough. That's tough on you. But I know who my spiritual daddy is and I shall not be moved. I'm like a tree that's planted by the water and you can't manipulate me. You're not in the spirit. You're in the flesh. And I love you, but I love that which is eternal more. That which is eternal more. I value that more. That's what Jesus was trying to say. And see, that's the, that's the struggle we have because we always think that it means that we value that less. And I'm not telling you to honor your parents any less or to honor your blood kin any less. I'm telling you to honor the children of God more. That's what Jesus was calling us to, more. To agape love. To agape love. I, I, you know, I saw the movie Wyatt Earp the other day and his dad set them down and he said, all there is is family, and everybody else is strangers. That's what he told them. Gene Hackman can be convincing when he wants to be, you know. And I listened to that, and I thought, you know, that's, that's kind of sad, isn't it? That's really sad. What about somebody who's lost their parents? What about somebody whose brothers and sisters have already gone on, or maybe they were an only child. What does that say to them? But thanks, God, when we become part of the family of God, we're born again, and we've got family all over the world. I said, we've got family all over the world. Apostle Ron told the story about how he was in the Philippines, how he went into a village where literally they had told him that if you go there and preach the gospel, we'll start killing people. The communists had been in there the, the, the day before, had killed people, and their bloodstains were still on the streets. People's heads were chopped off and stuck up on posts to warn them, don't do this. But the Spirit of the Lord had spoken to the Apostle Ron and said, go. And so he went there. He stepped up on that pulpit, and people would not even come out of their homes at first. They hid. Five Filipinos began to walk around him and pray while he preached. Five Filipinos. And he had told the Lord, he said, Lord, what do I say to this village? And God told him, he said, they've seen the blood of sorrow. Tell them about the blood that brings joy. And he began to declare that message, and soon they began to crawl out from their huts, some of them on their bellies, until finally a crowd had gathered. About halfway into his sermon, the U.S. military pulled up with 50 caliper machine guns on the back of their Jeeps. And one of the military men said, Preach, preacher! <laughs> and so he began to declare with boldness, and that entire village gave their heart to Jesus Christ. And at the end of that service, he went to these precious Filipino individuals and he said, thank you for praying for me. That meant so much that you surrounded me in prayer while he preached. And they said, well, yes, 
Yes, Pastor, we, we were praying for you, but that's not why we circled you tonight. We were told that there would be snipers in the trees sent to kill you. And each one of us thought, what a privilege if we could take the bullet that saved the man of God and kept the truth of the gospel coming to this village. Brother Ron said he felt about that big, but can I tell you, we're part of a brotherhood. We're part of a family. There's people you don't even know that would give their life for you just so you could share your testimony one more time. Can anybody thank God for the family of God? Come on, can we do that today? One more thought and I'll send you home. It is the incident at the cross where Mary is committed into John's keeping. The Oriental and the Jewish mother would have been prostrate and disheveled in her hair and in her garments. But Mary is found standing at the foot of the cross. There's no mention of words. There's not even a mention of tears. Silently and quietly at the direction of her son, she leaves the cross. Though we know that the sword was about to be thrust into his side. And here we know, and here we can summarize, that at this point, Mary has moved beyond her natural relationship with her son. And she knows Jesus as the Savior of the world. There's no other way to explain how she so removed herself from her cultural duties as a mother and was able to, in simple obedience to the Son of God, walk away. That's where every one of us have got to come to that revelation and understanding. Not just a knowledge of Jesus, not just to know Him in the natural. It's a dangerous thing sometimes to grow up in church and know all about Jesus and never know Him. A matter of fact, when Jesus went through Galilee, the Bible says he did no great miracles there. There's a quote there that says, Is he not Joseph the carpenter's son? They were so familiar with the man, Jesus, that they missed the Messiah, Jesus. That's one of the dangerous things about church. We can spend a lot of time talking about him and little time talking to him. And I don't know who this is for today, but I want to challenge you. Because all that's going to matter, all that's going to matter one day when death calls your number, or whether you hear that trumpet sound from heaven is, do you know him? Do you have an up-to-date and personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Not do you know about him. I know about the president, but I've never met him. I know about Lincoln, but I wasn't even alive when he was alive. But do you know him? Have you met Jesus on the Damascus Road? 
And have you asked him to be the Lord and the Savior of your life? Have you made the commitment to say that you believe that he is the Son of God and that he was raised from the dead? Because if you don't, then you don't know him, my friend. You just know about him. You have a natural, head knowledge, carnal relationship with the Lord, but you do not know him. You've not been born again of the Spirit. You're not part of that eternal relationship, that spiritual relationship that surpasses everything else. I want you to bow your heads with me right now, and if there's anyone in this place within the sound of my voice that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ in a very real, in a very personal way, if you've not accepted him, repented of your sins, and invited him to live in your heart, or maybe you've traveled that long and dark road as the prodigal son did. You've traveled down that path where the father at one point said, this is my son that was dead, and now he's alive again. Do you know him today? Do you know him today as Lord and Savior of your life? Listen, if you can't put your head down on the pillow at night and know beyond all shadow of a doubt that you are in relationship with Jesus, don't miss this opportunity right now to know him. The Apostle Paul declared that I might know him in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his suffering. To know Jesus is to know peace, is to know love, it's to know joy, it's to know purpose in your life. I'm asking right now if you're within the sound of my voice listen to me. Jesus is calling your name right now. I feel it. I feel the tug of an invitation right now. Somebody, God is dealing with your heart and if that is you don't let anything rob you. Don't let anything keep you. It's time today to confess Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. It's time to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. It's time to make a decision. This is a wicked age. It's time to choose a side. It's time to stand for what is real and for what is right. You've tried religion, try Jesus. You've tried church, but try Jesus. Try not just knowing about him, try knowing him. Come and meet him today and let him show you the path to eternal life. God's dealing with your heart right now. I don't want anyone looking around. I want everyone to reverence God for just a moment. And I'm going to ask that if God is dealing with your heart, then right now without hesitation, don't give the devil a moment to rob you. If he's dealing with you, then say yes to him right now and lift up your hand. Let me see it. Will you do it? Lift it up and let me see it. God's dealing with your heart right now. God bless you, sir. Is there anyone else that God's dealing with today? God bless you, young lady. God sees your hand, and he sees your heart. God bless you. God loves you. Is there anyone else God's dealing with you right now? God bless you. You can put it back down. Is there anyone else? Someone else God's dealing with you. Listen, everybody in this place needs it. God bless you, sir. Everyone in this place needs to stand to their feet right now. Everybody, let's stand up. I'm going to tell you, I believe God wants to work a miracle at this altar today. This is a fresh start. This is a new beginning. Amen. This is a new day to be born again. 
mean, that's getting saved is not like quantum physics. I promise you that. It's so simple. It's as simple as ABC. We must admit, we must believe, we must confess. First, we must admit that we're a sinner, that we've fallen short, that we can't do it without God. It's not about willpower. It is about the power of God working in us, just letting God be God in our lives. Amen. That's how we overcome sin. Admit and then believe. What did the Bible tell us? That if we believe that God has raised Christ from the dead and then confess with our mouth that He is Lord, you've got to say it. You've got to make that open declaration. I choose Jesus. And if you're at the point in your life today where you want a real relationship with Him and you raise your hand, the altar workers are coming right now. Amen. To face this congregation, come and stand, altar workers, quickly. Amen. And get ready to receive these people. Amen. Jesus is calling you today. And I don't want anything to keep you in that seat today. I want you to come to Jesus right now. Amen. Will you step out of your seat and will you come? Amen. Look at these precious young people. Give God a praise for that right now. I remember when I walked that aisle. If you raise your hand, come down here. Don't matter. It doesn't matter what people think. It's between you and God. Amen. Come on. Come on. There's somebody here that will pray with you. Praise the Lord. Here comes someone else. Come on and give God a praise this morning. Church, there's someone else that raised your hand. You're, you're coming. Come to Jesus. Amen. This is a way of letting the devil know. Amen. I'm making a new path. Confess it before the world, before everybody. I choose Jesus. Lord, I'm with you. And I'm about to take up my cross and follow you, Jesus, all the days of my life. Amen. If there's anyone else that raised their hand, you didn't come. God's dealing with you. Please don't stay in your seat. Come and pray. Josh needs somebody to pray with right now. Josh, raise your hand. Just raise your hand. Let them see who you are. Amen. Josh is waiting for you to pray with you and to believe God with you that this is going to be a new day. This is going to be a fresh start. The old prodigal son is coming home. This is my son that was dead. Now he is alive again. He's been restored to me. God's looking for you. He's searching for you. Come on to Jesus. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the promise he makes to you today. Saints of God, stretch your hands towards these precious souls. Father, in the name of Jesus, surround them today with your love and your power. Meet them at this altar, Jesus, and wrap your loving arms around them, God. Give them hope where there was no hope. Wash them clean. Restore their inner sense. Break the shame. Oh, in Jesus' name. Oh, erase the sin. The debt is paid. Heal the sunsets free. It's free indeed, Father. Oh, we thank you for the glorious liberty of the children of God. Right now, today, Father. Oh, we praise your name. We praise your name, Lord Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Everybody worship the Lord right now with Rachel. She sings. Turn.